So as I said, uh, we're in 1 Corinthians 4 this morning. So if you have Bibles, please open them to 1 Corinthians 4. See you. Paul is bringing to a close what we've been talking about really since we've opened this, this whole series. He's bringing to a close this first big concern he has, this first big issue the church is going through that he's wanted to deal with, which is factionalism and division around certain leaders that have divided them. And he's been entreating them to see that the standards they've been using to evaluate these leaders were really godless and worldly standards. And we've talked a lot about that. And that the truth of the gospel through their, their, uh, their poor application of, of standards that, that they should be treasuring above all things is really being tr- trounced by this church. And then he's been telling them not boast in men. Don't boast in people. Don't put your hope and define your lives by these men, their gifting, and don't divide up into camps to, to your favorite orator, but put your boast and your hope in the Lord Jesus. And last week we saw how he sought to then move from kind of a corrective approach to really woo them through the promise of all that God had given them. Remember, last week's message ended with this huge, beautiful, we called it a sunset vista, or I did, of, of this promise that all things belong to yours. You don't have to scrounge for your little tiny piece of the carpet when God's given you the whole palace. The world belongs to you, the present, the future. Everything belongs to you through Jesus Christ and the purchasing of your life um, with his own blood. And so now Paul begins to close his argument by moving into a really personal picture. 1 Corinthians 4 is a really personal appeal that Paul makes as he talks about what it means for him to be an apostle and what he's experienced as an apostle and and as well as his other fellow co-laborers in the gospel, these sent ones as apostle means. And he seeks to paint a real picture of 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 what's the relationship between him and the Corinthians. And in this passage, we're going to see valuable things about how we should view Christian leadership, how we should view anyone, not just pastors, but anyone who's in Christian leadership, care group leaders, ministry team leaders. But really, it has application for all of us. I mean, whether you are a leader or you're a member, we will be able to see better through this passage, I believe, by the power of the Holy Spirit, how we should consider ourselves and how we should consider others, how we should judge one another and how we shouldn't judge one another in Christ. So all that is for us today. We we need the Holy Spirit's help to help us to see this. So um, I'm going to read the passage for us this morning. Then we're just going to quickly ask God to help us ingest it, all he has for us this morning. So this is the passage, 1 Corinthians 1. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 5. These are the very words of God through his apostle Paul. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you Or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself. But I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time. Before the Lord comes. Who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness. And will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Let's pray. God, it is you who says to the darkness, let there be light. You did that at the beginning of time. 
You did that when you opened our eyes to the gospel of your son. And we need you to do that this morning again. To say to our hearts, let there be light. Lord, to diffuse and, Lord, radiate outward the light of your truth into our hearts that we might be changed. That we might not just hear words this morning from me. But through your Holy Spirit, we would hear your word. And that because Jesus purchased us for this very thing, your word would work to transform us further into the image of his son and the image of your son. So, Lord, we we proclaim that we desperately need you to hear or see anything of any value today and to be transformed in any way. We desperately need you. But, Lord, we, we also tell you that we trust you. That we're not just dependent on you, Lord, by your grace, Lord, we're confident that you care about us, that you love us, and you want to minister to us this morning through your word. And so with dependent trust, we look forward to you meeting us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to take this passage in two chunks, two big chunks. The first heading is servants and stewards. Servants and stewards, and the second heading later will be judges and judgments. Servants and stewards, judges and judgment. Those are two big themes in the, in the book, in the, in the section. So first, let's talk about servants and stewards. Paul says to a church that's been uh, struggling with him, he says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Spurgeon says of our passage this morning, The apostle was anxious to be rightly considered, and well he might be, for ministers are not often esteemed rightly. As a rule, they are either gloried in or else despised. That's so, I mean, I just, I've, growing up in the church, I felt that same way, that, that you're either on a pedestal or you're kind of in, uh, in the ditch as, as when you're looking at your leaders. Paul is saying to the Corinthians, don't look at us apostles and leaders as your saviors, as some of you have. And don't look at us as throwaways, as some of you have. Look at us as servants for Jesus for your sake. Look at us as servants of Jesus for your sake. This Greek word servants, it, it really, it, it in its rudimentary form, it, it, it it referred to an under rower in like a big galley ship. Somebody was underneath the deck there in the dark, rowing along to get the ship where it was supposed to be. They weren't the captain. They were just the rower. They were the servant of the captain. And it can also just naturally mean just subordinate, assistant. And, and that's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, I'm just a servant of Jesus. That's how you should look at me. My job is to care for the church for his sake, under his authority and his direction. And then Paul says this other word. He says, you should also look at us as a steward. Look at us as stewards. A steward might have been a manager of a house for a wealthy homeowner or manager of a big estate. Someone who oversaw the different operations so that the, the, the wealthy homeowner could enjoy his wealth and leave the operations to somebody they could entrust them to do it with, to, to, to be careful. But in this case, notice it's not an estate in the text it's not an estate or a rich man's house that it's steward, but it's this word mysteries. The phrase mysteries of God. What, what are the mysteries of God that are to be stewarded? Well, recall in the, the broader context of this whole section so far, Paul's been saying throughout these chapters, 
that the wisdom of man is worthless. It's the wisdom of God that counts. But what's he called the wisdom of God? He's called the wisdom of God, Christ and him crucified. And so we, we want to look at this in the context of the other chapters. And through that, we know that the mysteries of God that Paul is saying he's called to steward, it's really a shorthand synonym for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ and him crucified and all that that entails. It's a mystery of God that Paul was called to steward, to take care of, to disseminate, and radiate, and proclaim it. And we, in America, we have our Bibles, we have countless preachers, countless books, countless worship songs. But think back to Paul's day. Nothing. None of that. Every ground was hard ground for the gospel. Every area of the world was, was, was closed to the gospel in terms of their experience. We see John 3.16 held up at, at sports games, and, and that's awesome. But we can kind of take for granted that the gospel is available to be heard and to be understood. That wasn't so at Paul's time. And there was a time around the Corinthians' time before Paul came when, when everyone, all Gentiles, not only did they not know the gospel, because the gospel hadn't been brought to them, they had no hope. Ephesians says that the Gentiles formerly had, they had no hope for God. They had no relationship with God. They had only darkness. They had only death. They had no promise of eternal life, but only the prospect of eternal lostness and sin. And now Paul declares that through him and all the apostles, God has spoken into that darkness. Let there be light, the light of my son. Proclaim the light into the darkness. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Lamb of God who, as David said this morning, reconciles all and gives us a ministry of reconciliation to Jew and Gentile alike to be reconciled to God forever. And Paul says, that's what my job is. I'm a steward of this mystery. Making this mystery known is my life. It's so important. It's, it's my whole life's duty. It's so important that I'm giving up everything for this duty to make this mystery known to you, to unpack it for you. It's so important that I will die to open up this mystery because it means everything for you, that you know this ministry and that this ministry takes root in your heart and takes your heart, that you can partake of this mystery and enjoy it and know it. And that's still what it's about. That's still what we're about. That's why every Sunday we talk about this mystery. We sing about this mystery. At the prophecy mic, we're told about this mystery. We gave money to Global Gates this morning so that this mystery could go out to the lost, to, to closed countries. We gave money this morning to international Christian concerns so that persecuted believers could know that Jesus is still with them and still cares about them, that the mystery will be protected in their hearts. So through this passage, Paul tells us something about the nature of the church and the nature of leadership in the church and the nature of all of our lives as believers in the church. Basically, he's saying it's all to be cross-centered. It's all to be mystery proclaiming. It's all to be cross-centered in really at least two ways. Number one, it's to be cross-centered in the sense that Jesus calls us all to be servants, like he calls Paul to be a servant, to take up our cross daily and follow him and to see ourselves, Lord, I am your servant every morning. Lord, I am your servant, and I'm not a really great servant. I need lots of your grace, lots of your mercy, just like I did before I was saved. I still need the same grace. I still need the same mercy, but that's what my, my identity is. I am your servant, Lord. 
I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. And so any leader of any ministry in this church, any care group, any sound team leader, any pastor, any elder, not to be in it for yourself. You are not to be in it for your popularity. I'm not to be in it for my exaltation. I'm here to be a servant. That's what my fight has got to be about, to be a servant, to care for people as Jesus' servant for his sake and not my own. It means that every believer, whether you're in formal leadership or not, whether you lead something or not, you have the privilege to be a servant for Jesus. Not just the privilege, but the call to walk out of selfishness each day, walk out of self-exaltation each day, and into the beauty of being a servant to the king. And the second way Christian leadership is portrayed here, the Christian life is portrayed here, apart from leadership, the second cross-centered way is that you're called to be a steward of the mystery of God. You're called to steward this gospel of Christ and Him crucified. And depending on your station in life, where you are, what day it is, whether you're home or at work, you're called to steward that in different ways. An elder, a pastor of a church, or an evangelist, or a teacher, in particular, you're called, commanded without option, to steward that mystery to, to other believers in the church. That's why pastors preach. That's why a condition of eldering is that you must be able to teach the mysteries of God. But even if you're not called to that, you're called in your own station to steward the mystery. First Peter 3.13 tells us that we all must be ready to give an answer to what this mystery is. He's not just talking to elders or pastors or care group leaders or evangelists. He's saying, everyone, you need to steward this ministry by being ready to tell people what this mystery is. This mystery of the gospel. Are we ready? We should just be regularly asking ourselves, are we ready? Are we stewarding this mystery by learning it in our hearts so that we're able to speak it from our heart? Are we treasuring it and keeping it aflame in our heart by reminding ourselves of it and taking our own hope in it so that we can tell those who don't have hope that we're ready to tell them this hope is real, this hope is nourishing? We've talked about, you know, when we talk about this and we ask this question, are you ready? I'm, I'm always thinking, well, what? What's some little thing I can do to help you guys be equipped to be ready? So forgive me if this is a little bit cheesy, but I just want to tell you, everybody has phones. I just want to tell you about an app this morning. Here's the app. You guys have seen the little booklets. There's an app called Two Ways to Live. It's a terrific app you can download on your phone, and it just goes through the gospel. And you can read this app in the in the warmth of your own living room and be ready to share it with other people. And you can keep it there on your phone ready because everybody keeps their phone with them. Now we live in a phone age, right? There are other ways to get it. There are other ways to talk about this and be equipped. But I just, I just want to just point you to that app, Two Ways to Live. Matthias Media is a really faithful and good ministry that puts the gospel in people's hands in ways they can really hear and understand. But apart from First Peter's evangelistic appeal to always be ready in every station you're committed to live a life worthy and to steward the mystery of the gospel you're a dad you're a mom you're called to steward that mystery before your children you're uh, you're single you're called to steward that mystery among your friends and in every other station in life we're called to not just directly steward the mystery of the gospel but indirectly in the way that we live our lives in our pursuit of Jesus, we should do what the Bible says, which is to adorn this mystery, adorn this gospel with, with good, godly lives. In Ephesians 5, for instance, Paul says that marriage, this, 
domestic, domestic station that most of us eventually are called to. It's really something much deeper. It's to reveal this mystery of the gospel. Marriage is supposed to reveal the mystery of the gospel. Christ and his church being metaphorically symbolized by a man and his wife. And so if your husband, do you know that through your husband, your husbanding, you're supposed to steward this mystery to your wife and how you lay down your life for her, how you care for her above yourself, how you nourish and cherish her. If you're a believing wife, do you know that you're supposed to show something about this mystery and how you follow your husband as the church is to follow Christ? Not because you're trying to grind out martyrdom, but because Peter says you trust not primarily in your fallen husband who is so fallen, but you trust God. And therefore, you're not conquered by fear. If you work as an employee, you're called to adorn the gospel, to steward this mystery by serving in a way that commends Jesus to your boss and your coworkers. So that when they find out that you're a Christian, they don't say, oh, that lazy guy. <laughs> Christians are so lazy at work. They say, oh, man, he's a believer. I knew it because just believers just really seem to do a great job at this company. As a student, you stand for Christ and steward the mystery when you stand against cheating on tests and bullying and sexual immorality and substance abuse. When you befriend the lonely, or the nerdy, or the, the ugly, or the nothing by this world's standards. And then Paul says in verse 2, Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. That they be found faithful. Um, this is just freeing to me. All of us with our words and our lives are called to steward the mystery of the gospel and to be servants of Christ. It's the gospel we've been entrusted with. It's Jesus we're trying to serve. But we don't have to worry that we're going to be evaluated in superficial ways by God. You know, if, if, if you're in ministry, you don't have to worry that you're going to be valued by how popular your ministry was. Or how, how many people came to your care group. Or how many people came to your church. How big your soundboard is. How much money you've made as a, as a worker at, at the firm. You don't have to worry that God's going to judge you on what college you got into if you're a young person. Or how popular you are. How great people and how cool people think you are. We don't have to worry. We shouldn't be consumed with how nice people think our home is. Or how beautiful or handsome they think we are. Or how funny or intelligent. Or how far we got on the ladder in our company what grades our kids get, or how perfectly they behave. No, those things aren't the things that God's going to judge us for. He's going he's to evaluate us, Paul says, on our faithfulness. Did we seek to be faithful to Jesus? That's all we have to worry about, really. It has a lot of implications, but, but we really have to really keep our eye on that question every day. Are we being faithful to Jesus? Not, is everybody happy with us? Does everybody like what we're doing? No, am I, am I seeking to be faithful to Jesus? And this evaluation isn't our salvation. God's not judging us to, to see whether he'll take us or not. We are already his. But he's called us to be faithful. Our salvation is always going to be Christ. But he's looking for us each day. Run this race by my mercy. Give yourselves afresh every day to me by my grace, by my power, holding on to my gospel as your own righteousness. Don't earn it, but rely on my righteousness and then rely on my promises for power. Seek to be faithful to me. I'm the one you got to worry about. That's it. I'm the only one. 
Everybody else runs a 15-mile second place in a 15-mile race. 15 miles behind you in a 15-mile race, rather. And now, coming back to Paul, he explains why he's been clarifying what his call is as a steward, as a servant. Why did he bring this up to the church? Well, he brought it up to the church. We're going to move into the second heading here. Judgment and judges. Judgment and judges. He's bringing it to the church because the Corinthians had been judging him in ungodly ways. And he explains this in verse 3 through the rest of our passage. Verse 3 through most of verse 5. He says this, But with me it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Let's just stop there. What's going on here? They're judging Paul. It seems from what we've seen in the book previously that they're judging Paul, Apollo, Cephas for their their relative lack or uh, relative powers in oratory prowess compared to others and their stature and their charisma. But if we look at this passage in verse 5, it seems that there's perhaps more than that going on in their judgment. Look at verse 5. It says, Do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Whatever the case is going on, Paul says, there's some judgment going on that's moving into God's territory, the hidden things of the heart. And Paul says, with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court regarding those things. So Paul's a servant for the Corinthians, for Christ's sake. But he's saying, but you're not my master. You're not my judge. That's God alone. Now, this doesn't mean that Paul didn't love them or wasn't hurt by the rejection. No, Paul was human and he did not love being falsely accused any more than any of us love being falsely accused. For any Christian, trust between those he serves and him, those who <coughs> who are in his company, trust is a precious, precious thing, and it should be fought for. And in fact, Paul's letters showed that as an apostle, he cared deeply to defend himself against false accusations, and he fought for the trust of the churches that doubted him. But he did not do it because he was trying to find his ultimate hope and his life in their trust. He did it because he was called by God to lead them. And trust was so important to that call. He did it because he loved them. And he wanted peace with them. And we have to leave room that Paul probably also was human like us. And by some measure, he had a desire not to be hated and misjudged. But none of those things controlled him. Their trust, their approval, their love, their opinion was not central to him. It was not primary to him, even as he sought to love them and minister to them. God's opinion was what counted to him. God's judgment, God's evaluation. Proverbs twenty nine twenty five says, The fear of the Lord, the fear of man brings a snare. The fear of people, their opinions, their esteem, the hunger for their approval to define us, it's a snare. It's a steel trap that closes in on your ankles and binds up your life and shrinks you down and holds you in a place of imprisonment to things you shouldn't be imprisoned by. But it says, he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. He who makes the Lord his trust will be exalted. 
In fact, it's funny, Paul moves into to, to, to an, a very interesting place. He sees his own approval of himself as irrelevant, really, compared to God. He says, I do not even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. Obviously, Paul wants to see his heart as best he could. He's not saying, don't spend any time considering your life or your heart condition. Even here, he indicates some sense of fruit that comes from an inner evaluation. He says, I'm not aware of anything against me. So it's not a man who's never considering his heart. He is. He's not aware of anything. He says, I'm I'm considering my life. But I think Paul's indicating here for himself and for all of us, there's a place beyond which we just cannot go. When we think about our lives, we think about other lives. He he calls it in verse 5, the hidden things in darkness. The purposes of the heart. Proverbs calls these deep, deep waters. These are deep places that only God can see. Sometimes he reveals them to us. But oftentimes he does not reveal them to us. Either our own deepest heart waters or uh, certainly others. Leon Morris writes a word to the introspective here. He says, introspective, introspection, I think Morris means a hyper, overbearing, obsessive kind of introspection. He says, introspection is not the way forward. Often people think that they know exactly what their spiritual state is and just what their service for God has affected. The result may depress beyond reason or exalt beyond measure. Isn't that great? You think you know yourself. You think you know what your life's work is about, how God considers you and sees your life's work. And he says the result may depress beyond reason or it may exalt beyond measure. Neither is relevant. It is not the task of the servant to pass such judgments, but rather to get on with the job of serving the Lord. That's freeing. Because the truth is all of us, all of us carry in everything we do, at least some taint of sin and all the things we do. All of us have to say with David, who can discern his error? Forgive my hidden faults. And isn't so good, brothers and sisters, that God does that? That he can see our hidden faults? We don't have to live in the prison of constant self-evaluation. And he forgives those hidden faults in his grace and mercy. Oftentimes without ever, without ever even talking to us about them. But it seems that the Corinthians had decided that they could see the hidden faults of Paul. They could discern his error, and they could pass judgments that only God could. And they had assigned sin to Paul's heart, a heart they couldn't see. And so he's saying, Paul is basically saying, brothers and sisters, you're going farther than you should. You're acting as if you're God, you, that, as if you could see into my heart's motives. You know my life on the outside. You know that I have no, that I don't think I have any reason to, to think I'm, I'm guilty of something right now. I don't think you have any reason to think I'm guilty of some unrepentant sin from what you can see. But you've decided you know better. And that you can see what only God can see and you've judged me. And he's saying, leave that to God. I don't, I don't know for sure about my heart. The best I can see, I'm okay. But, but leave this, this judging into the deepest, darkest places. Leave that to God. So here's this application for us. We're supposed to not judge. But if you know the Bible, you know that we're also supposed to judge, right? I mean, what do we do? We got, we got Matthew 7, 1, judge not that you not be judged. That is the favorite Bible verse, maybe, of many people who don't know the Bible very well. <laughs> and then there's John seven twenty four: do not judge by appearances, Jesus says, but judge with a right judgment. Jesus, which is it? Am I supposed to not judge or am I supposed to judge? It's not always easy to understand. It's, 
But it's important to think on this tension. It's really important. D.A. Carson says this. It is utterly disastrous to appeal for judgment when forbearance is called for. Or to prohibit all judgment when judgment is precisely what is needed. Ah! (laughs) It's utterly disastrous to appeal for judgment when forbearance is called for. Or to prohibit all judgment when judgment is precisely what is needed. How do we know? It's not always easy to understand. We need to know our Bibles. We need to know the context of these commandments. Just some technical tips. Know your word. Look around the context of of the commandments about judging to try to understand what's going on around the text. But let's talk about a couple of things that are kind of basic. When there is clear and serious sin you can see, when God has allowed you to see clear and serious sin, sexual immorality, fits of rage, stealing, hateful words, obvious lying, slander, things you know are wrong, God's not calling you to be like, ah, I can't judge you. He's not calling you to ignore that. If that is a brother or sister, if it's serious and pervasive, you're called to lovingly confront them. If safety is an issue in talking, get help. I'm not kidding, you know. It's, it's an attempt, you know, we, we want to follow Matthew 18, but we don't want to put ourselves in a dangerous situation either. But when you do have a right judgment because of blatant sin, God would say, It's a judgment that's also got to be indwelt by this desire for the good of the person you're judging. You're not judging them eternally. You're not their their literal eternal judge. God is. You're making a discernment, a judgment for their good, for an appeal to their repentance, for their restoration back to God. And that kind of desire for their good, it refuses this settled hatred or this bitterness or this disgust with the person. What we might call, rightly, it refuses a judgmental attitude, right? We do have to judge. We want to judge without a judgmental attitude, an attitude of redemption and a love and a recognition that we're sinners all, who need grace all the time. So that's one aspect of, of judging, clear and serious sin that you can see. But there's another difficult aspect of judgment that comes when we get ourselves into places like the Corinthians had with Paul, where we can decide that we know more than we actually do about a person's heart. We don't see clear or blatant sin. Or maybe we do see some sin on the outside in part, but we just decide in our wisdom that we can see the whole picture. We get, we got, we got them, man. I got that person. I can see their heart purposes and their motives purpose, perfectly. And I decide, man, I got them sized up. Man, my sweet, my sweet wife over there, I, I feel like I've done that in our marriage, you know? We've been in a conflict and Jen said something or done something and I've just been like, ah, I just know she's, she's after me. I just know she's sinning in this way. I just, I just know it, you know? And, I don't. I don't. So we've all done this, probably. At least I have. And when we do that, we come to this place where we actually do sit as God over people. We, we're no longer walking in a place recognizing in our humility. We can't see purposes. We can't see motives purpose, perfectly. We're saying, no, we get the whole picture. And we sit above people as if we were God, seeing all and passing judgment. And usually that's indicative not of a redemptive heart, but a heart that's trying to control, a heart that's trying to win, a heart that's trying to assert its superiority over others. 
And we see that in conflicts. Flashes of anger bring that judgmental spirit. And Paul would say, no, 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 don't go there. You're going to places that only God can go. You're claiming to see things that only God can see. It's not your job. And so our judgment of others needs at least two breaks. The love break, two breaks, you know, in a car, breaks. Bikes, let's go, you got two breaks, two handlebars, breaks. One break is the love break, where we love the sinner even as we call out the sin, knowing that we're sinners who need mercy. That's that first break we talked about. And then there's this, this what we're talking about now, where we, it's the humility break, where we, we just say to ourselves, I can't see heart purposes perfectly. Only God can. I will humbly hope the best and let him take care of the rest. That's kind of a little bumper sticker. I will humbly hope the best and let him take care of the rest. little rhyme there. That was free. Free for all of you. And so Paul says this is a generous thing. He says this generous thing. Listen, he says, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. This is amazing. Paul is saying, I'm not even going to put my stock in my perfect heart. I mean, as far as I can tell, I'm okay. But Corinthians, you don't have to worry that you're going to get hoodwinked. If, if I'm doing something really bad to you, God sees it and he's going to reveal it. If he doesn't reveal it in my lifetime, he'll reveal it on the final day. In effect, Paul's saying, maybe there are bad motives in me. I can't see. I'm not going to go crazy trying to look into the recesses of my heart. Only God can. I'm not aware of it, but neither are you. So let's just wait for God to take care of that. There is this day coming, this incredible, terrible, glorious, incredible day, Paul says, when everyone and everything you've done, everything you've thought, everything you've said, every purpose and motive of your heart is going to be laid bare and exposed before the entire universe. Of course, God does some laying bare some things even now in our lives. We get found out at times for different things. Things hidden do get exposed. But one day it's not going to be in part. It's going to be in full. All of it. No one will be able to hide. Whew. But it's also freeing in some ways to think about that day, right? Because when there's injustice and we're the victims of it, it's not going to go on forever. I remember recently I, I, uh, I saw an old friend who I think had gone through a lot of terrible slander. And, um, and we were talking and, and I said to her, I didn't, I didn't mean to kind of say it in, the, in a hard, mean way, but I just was trying to encourage her to be strong. And I just said to her, there may be some things with some people you're just going to wait, you're just going to have to wait till the final day. Like, there, there may be people who are going to carry this slander, this negative opinion of you until the final day. But on that day, God will finally review all things. And that, and her response was, you know, I, 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 will, I can pray against the wicked, wickedness of the slander. But God is helping me not pray against wicked people. He's helping me pray for them and love him. And I think in her heart, it was, her trust was in the Lord. That on that day, he's going to reveal 
And there'll be a vindication. But it's a terrifying day too, right? Everything's exposed. And Paul says this amazing thing though. About that day. He says, on that day, each one will receive his commendation from God. D.A. Carson says about that, this is, this is crazy. He says, this is perhaps the most remarkable feature of this paragraph. With the final day of judgment in view, Paul might have been expected to say, at that time, each will receive his rebuke from God. But instead, he says, at that time, each will receive his praise from God. How wonderful. The king of the universe, the sovereign who has endured our endless rebellion and sought us out at the cost of his son's death, climaxes our redemption by praising us. How does that happen? How in the world does that happen? How does God look at my life full of inconsistencies and sins and at the end commend me how does he do that with you how is he going to on that final day commend you when even the good things we do are only sourced and possible because of his grace like i don't have anything to give him on that final day that that either isn't sin or he didn't give me the gift the grace to do for him right I mean, if if God's looking inside me and looking at my life, how is he going to commend me when all I've got is either my sin or his grace? Well, the, the answer is because he doesn't, firstly, he just doesn't look at me. He doesn't look at you on that final day centrally and primarily. Martin Luther says, the gospel snatches us away from ourselves. And places us outside ourselves. So we do not depend on our own strength. We do not depend on our own conscience. Our own experience or works. But but depend on that which is outside of ourselves. That is on the promise and the truth of God. What Martin Luther is saying here is very simple. He's saying because in that final day it's not going to depend primarily on your life. But on Jesus' life. It's not going to depend primarily on your faithfulness, but on Jesus' faithfulness to you. On the cross and through his Holy Spirit, out of your life. Paul is taking us back to the mystery. That he's pouring out his life to steward the mystery of this gospel. That says that Jesus has paid for all of your and my bad and impure heart motives. And all that will be left for us. On that day, at the very end of that evaluation, which might include some tears, it might include some stuff burning up, but at the very end, it will be God saying, everything is forgiven. And now I can commend you for the grace that I gave you, that produced good in you, that I did see. That might seem impossible to you. But if it does seem impossible to you, if it does seem impossible to me, then have we left sight of, have we lost sight of Christ and him crucified? Which is Paul's whole message at the core, this gospel of Christ and him crucified. Have we forgotten that at the center of all things is to be this gospel hope we have? That's how Paul can say at the very beginning of this letter. Our Lord Jesus Christ will sustain you to the end, guiltless 
in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful. He's saying this to a church that is so messed up. It's hard to believe when you look through this book. But the first thing, basically, he says to him, God will sustain you guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is enough. His blood is enough. The mystery of this gospel is enough. Isn't that the best darn news that we could ever hear or ever hope in? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, please help us to believe again this mystery you've revealed to us of Christ and him crucified for us. Please help us to draw our nourishment, Lord, primarily and centrally, not from our own works, not from our own experiences, not from others' opinions of us, not from our failures, not from our successes. Help us to draw our hope and our identity from Jesus Christ and him crucified for us. Help us, Lord God. Help us to see that you have forgiven us. All of us for everything. And because of that, help us to see, Lord, that your power is now available to us for re-forgiveness, for re-strengthening, for renewing, so that we can, we can live out lives of servants of Christ. Not imprisoned by other people's evaluations. Not biting and devouring and judging one another and leaving that to you. So that we can be rebukers for redemptive purposes. Lord, give us grace to do all these things. Thank you for your beautiful word. Thank you for your holy and good truth. And thank you for your gospel of grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.